Did you do any homework for this show? Do you ever do any homework? <laughs> do for I do, show? do I, Was there homework for this show? Are you recording? Because this is the show. I don't think. I don't, is this this is the show? This is now the show. <laughs> this is the show. Okay, so with the all the the, the fiddling with the mics. No, that, that was, was not, not the, show? the show. That was not show. Are you sure? Because I think that's fascinating that stuff that the listeners would definitely want. That was to pre-show. About. People people really love talking about podcasting. So if I've so learned anything. Uh, there's the show, then there's After Dark, and what's the what's the stuff before the show called? Before Dark. Before Light? Before Midnight. Before Midnight. Black Light. We call it Black, black Light. Black Light. <laughs> Plus that, you Grateful Dead posters, because it's uh, time. Yeah. So, I don't know, did, did anything happen in the world of technology this week? It's only Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should be recording on Fridays. Yeah. yeah. Because then uh, everything would have happened. Can I tell you about my favorite tech story that I've found so far? I was just writing a story oh, yeah. about this. Kindle has launched, Amazon has launched a way to turn, to essentially rip your paper books into ebooks. It is the worst idea ever. <laughs> Sorry, it's not the worst idea ever. It's the worst implementation ever because it actually involves you scanning your entire book. Oh my god! And no, then, really? and then, I'm not making any of this up. So you buy a piece of software from them called Kindle Convert. It is generally fifty dollars, but today on sale for twenty dollars <laughs> because Amazon likes you. Amazon likes you. Then well, you use gadget this. has a really good headline. Then you, yes, no, it's like not burning your books or something. No, rip, mix, don't burn. Gadget's headline is, you can now rip books to your Kindle, but you won't want to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> My favorite thing about this is you go through, you scan your entire book in. And most of us have flatbed scanners, right? So if you've ever like taken back to the days when you were in college and scan and like photocopied books from the library and remember that you always like getting the middle part flat was always annoying as hell. Oh, yeah. Yep. So after you've done all that, you put in the title and the author of the book. At which point, Amazon searches its catalog and says, hey, there's already a Kindle version of this. Would you like to buy it? <laughs> it prompts you to buy it? After you've scanned jerks. the entire book in. So, like, presumably you didn't take the 30 seconds to, like, search on Amazon and see if there was already a Kindle version of this book before spending two fucking hours scanning your book in. Am I a clown? Do I amuse you in some way? <laughs> So the only thing I can think of, and, and I mean, you're not going to get, I feel like, so just use this scanning in OCR, essentially. The one thing that is the pseudo sort of compelling thing about this is if you have a book that actually has like handwritten annotations in it or something, this will preserve them presumably as images, right? Like as a PDF, which also seems weird um, because then you can't use a lot of the Kindle book feature, like it won't reflow text and stuff, presumably, or not as well. Um I don't know. It, it seems very odd. I can only think of this being useful if you're sort of like a hobbyist archivist and you have some like <laughs> handwritten, like maybe you've got like a family Bible or something that you want to archive. Right? It seems terrible. And like to me, it would it could potentially make the tiniest sliver of sense. And I mean like a very small sliver of sense if they sold a device that did the scanning for you. That exists, though. That's the thing. Is I used to work in a library, and there are such things as book scanners, which will automatically turn pages. Like right. that, if but you are a they're professional, not selling one. no, they're not selling one. If you're a, and, and that's the thing is like Engadget even suggests maybe if you're like a professional archivist or something, it's like no, they have better tools for this already because it's a niche market. <laughs> 
I, I just don't know. Like, again, at 50 bucks or 20 bucks, if you if Amazon really likes you today, I, I can only think that this is useful for people who have some sort of like hobbyist thing where they scan in books, you know, like, and because even if you have, like, if you're a library and you're doing preservation uh, and you have like an old manuscript or something with annotations in it. You want to preserve the actual book, not just the text of it. Anybody could go out and buy, presumably, the copy, like the text of one of these books, because most of the times they exist in other, you know, in other forms or other editions. But if you're trying to preserve a specific edition or a copy of it, you want the whole fucking thing, not just the text this from is, it. This is for one thing and one thing only, and that is vintage, violent Japanese porn comics. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. It works only on text that goes left to oh, right okay. and top to bottom. Well, sometimes, sometimes you just want the words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the other thing i wanted to say was that it doesn't work on anything that doesn't run left to right or top to bottom so your your uh your japanese manga your arabic texts those are all out my dead sea scrolls your dead sea scrolls nowhere near this thing nowhere <sighs> near this thing. so i mean so the thing that annoys me about this is you know I, I understand that the the ease of ripping cds and dvds comes from the fact that they're already in digital format right so it's just a matter of converting those bits from one format to another format the problem with books is that they're an analog technology, right? So anything where you have to go from analog into digital is painstaking and time-consuming. Uh, same thing with, like, if you're trying to digitize your LPs, right? You got to actually sit there and, like, flip the record over or swap the records in and out and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's a little easier in that case because it's – you can't just – if you could just take a picture of your book and have it scanned in in entirety, that would be amazing. But that technology does not exist. But I have so many books that I would love to also have ebook copies of, but I'm just not – in most cases, not willing to buy another copy, and that's really what the publishers. Well, plus, I mean, is, is your, isn't your time worth? I mean, assuming that there is a a, co- a digital copy, isn't your time worth worth just buying the digital copy instead of standing there for yeah, exactly. seven the, hours? The only other option I can think of is if you've got like if you're trying to like hire your teenage kid, like yeah, I'll give you twenty yeah, bucks sh- to scan, yeah, sure. scan my right. books in, but you right. don't want your teenage kid doing this because they're gonna they're gonna screw up somewhere. Oh yeah, like everywhere. What's your strategy or your your plan when you go to buy a book and the Kindle book is slightly more than the paperback version? Do you get the paperback instead or do you like, well, I want to have it digitally, so I'm just going to go with the Kindle version? I think it's a format thing, really. I mean, like you said, I think I'm not always looking for the cheapest option. I mean, if I wanted the cheapest option, I would get a book out of the library. <laughs> yeah, but true. then you'd have to go to a library right, or at least right. to a library's crappy website. Yeah, which is painful. I agree. <laughs> and have you have you seen library people? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it depends what you want it for, right? Like, I think there are books that are better. I enjoy reading more in hard copies, and then there's just like, oh, I just really want to read this, and I want the convenience of being able to read it on my phone or my iPad or my that's the yeah, thing the iPad. I, I won't get through a book unless it's <clears throat> unless it's digital, unless I have it everywhere, because just in a format that I can read in bed w- without having a light on. Oh, look at this guy reading in bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah about me, huh? Huh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> My spacious bed <laughs> with a dog taking up like half of it. I, I really want, you know, so Amazon did kind of yeoman's work, I think, with this whole like anytime they converted a while back. If you had bought a CD from them, you got a copy of that CD is like a digital file, which was hilarious because there were so many CDs I had bought for presents as people that were then added to my Amazon music library. I'm like, I will never oh, yeah. listen to this. Um, <laughs> and, and it's kind of, but it's kind of like an iTunes match thing, right? Where it's like, okay, you have a lot of music. We're just going to like sort of grandfather you in. 
I would love it if there were a feature like that for books. I don't think it'll ever happen because I think between the publishers and the retailers that, you know, skims way too much money off the top. But as a consumer, it would be great if more books were like you buy a hard copy of the book and you get a digital copy of Mm -hmm. the book. Like right. you and scan that's, it that's in what Amazon does with music, right? You right. buy the CD and you get the MP3s. And so, like, I will buy a CD from Amazon when the CD is cheaper than the MP3 album, since they automatically give you the MP3s anyway. I don't even have to rip it. I don't even have to open the package, and I still have the music for less. But <laughs> I won't. I, 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 it's very, very rare for me to purchase, let alone read, a book that is not in a digital format at this point. It's, <laughs> it's not convenient yeah. enough. So, yeah, so we're, I'm not going to be ripping my books anytime soon, I guess. <laughs> rip? Do you don't want to rip, mix, and burn? Uh, yeah, I, that's what I really like doing is mixing up, like, <laughs> random pages of books. Like, I flip up, I don't know what page will come next. <laughs> it's a it's a create-your-own-adventure. Yeah, except it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Turn to page 43. It's, it's, really suddenly, a, it's really an absurdist version of this book. Your, your Stephen King book is... To Kill a Mockingbird, too. To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> Uh, that's yeah, not that's... related to technology, so we cannot talk about it to kill a mockingbird. Done. Uh, okay. I got. I got nothing else. Uh, so we're done. Related. No. Yeah, that was the end uh, of the podcast. Get, who, who else has uh, has like uh, real fond memories of Radio Shack? Huh. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> my favorite thing about Radio Shack was going in to buy some batteries and they wanting to know what my zip code is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've done my that. My dad would never tell them. Uh, and then your and then your five minute transaction takes twenty minutes. I, uh, I I will say Radio Shack helped me learn computer programming uh, in that my parents hired me a tutor from a, who was a woman they met at Radio Shack who sold them computers. Oh, wow. So that was my biggest Radio Shack connection. I don't think we were paid Radio Shack for the tutoring, but it was only because they knew this woman through Radio Shack that they found her and she would come to the house and work on me and not work on me. <laughs> Excuse work me. On, Work, teach me programming. It was great. She was she was the best programming teacher I ever had. Oh, that's pretty cool. Bar I none. think locally, by the time I think I was old enough to get really interested in this stuff, I don't think I think Radio Shack was already kind of a shell of its former self. And we had a local store called You Do It Electronics, which was like literally a giant warehouse of electronics parts. And oh, that was kind God, of, I, I think, what, you know, like Radio Shack had been, but it was even more so. It was really yeah. focused on the hobbyist market. So they didn't, like, sell a lot of, you know, consumer electronic stuff or anything. They sold, like, yeah, you want to buy, like, a, you know, a giant spool of Ethernet cable and put your, like, yeah. your own ends? That's where you go. <laughs> yeah, we had a place. We had a place like that, too. I'm like, my first first job, um, my boss would send us, send me there, like, you know, I need a... I need- I need like some weird length of some cable, <laughs> like go down there, and, and I would just like go in there. I'm like, oh my god, this is cool. I can't imagine that place is still around, though. Yeah, I don't know if you. I think you do it. Electronics is still around, but it's it was. I, I think again, it has. Yeah, it looks like it's still. According to maps, it is still there. Um, but it, that had such a niche market, whereas in it was a you know a one off store, right? It wasn't a chain of stores. Um, but it's yeah, I, Radio Shack. I think has. There is nothing that Radio Shack offers that you cannot get get at a hundred different places now. I feel like, except for yeah. maybe cheap cables. Well, yeah, and that's what I've basically been using it for because we've got one. I can actually walk take ten minutes to the one that's closest to us, and and then on those rare occasions where I've needed, you know, like I want it, like you get, like my wife got a printer or a scanner or something, and it didn't come with the cable that we needed. Mm. So you know, I just walked over and got it instead of having to wait an extra day for Amazon to deliver it. But then you'll and just paid, now, and paid and paid twice as much for the privilege. But oh, now, for sure. Now you'll just now you'll just Amazon everything though.
presumably. Well, well, and then now the rumor is that Amazon might buy <laughs> Radio yeah, Shack. Right. <laughs> I guess that is a, a weird sort of... Amazon's been experimenting with this whole thing. Like They have like some cities, they have the lockers where they'll like, you can go and pick stuff up. They'll like, yes. it's like uh, almost like ruining everything I love about Amazon. <laughs> like if I wanted to put on pants, I wouldn't be on Amazon. Well, they also, I mean, they, they seem to experiment with all these different things where it's like the, you know, same day delivery in certain places. Uh, I think, you know, the drone delivery thing that they famously want to do. It is interesting to me that they have, you know, they're trying a bunch of stuff in that area to try and become more convenient. Which seems at odds with so much of their other, like their other failed <laughs> devices. <laughs> like they tried, they tried to push, they made a hard push in the consumer electronics space, and that has not worked out for them. I feel like, yeah. but not so, not so far. I uh, yeah, I, it's it's not surprising to me that Radio Shack has to close. <laughs> I don't feel like they kept quite no, it's, it, enough. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's something you would have thought would have happened ten years ago. And I um. I don't know. It's I'm I'm amazed at how many. I mean, there aren't that many, but I'm still amazed at any time I see any electronic store still in business. I'm surprised. So I I feel like the writing's on the wall for all of them. Not like you know the Apple Store, but those I think are doing okay. But when you look at um, the occasional not yet fully shuttered Best Buy, I'm always surprised that they can continue to exist. I don't know. See, I think that Best Buy mm. is the biggest competitor to something like Radio Shack because there are times when you want to go into a store very few admittedly but like speak for yourself maybe maybe it's a generational thing i don't know like because i feel like you know there are definitely <laughs> you're talking to me yeah john you, you love doing all your shopping in best buys right oh yeah i'm not sure i've ever actually you know, i've been in one but it's been an awful long time there's one that uh there's one at our local mall that you have to walk through to get to parts of the mall if you come in a certain way so i end up going see through that's a lot. that's a great yeah that's a great strategic uh design there right it's just building your best buy like right around the door to the mall yeah i mean the only time i can think of that it really comes in useful is is again that that scenario where you need something right now like if my router died say i would consider you know driving into a best buy and just buying a new router yeah i used to i mean i used to want to like every time i bought a expensive television i used to want to see it yeah yeah. Um, see the picture but even like the last one i bought i just bought off of amazon yeah, like, based on recomm- based on recommendations and it's that's nice tv yeah so. I, I did the same thing and and it, because the problem with going to the store to do that and this is the problem that my dad has been shopping for like a flat screen tv for like seven years now uh but the problem is that the ones they have in the store are never the right models right like if you invariably you look something <laughs> up online you're like oh this yeah. one sounds pretty good i'd like to go into a store and see it good fucking luck like finding the right <laughs> the right model in any store like like, it's, it's this nearly is the Z, impossible. not the L. Exactly. It's always, like, slightly different. I feel like they do the mattress thing, right, where they change the, <laughs> the model names slightly so that you can't comparison shop. Totally. No question they do that. Or, or, or ever replace parts. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, you have to throw that $4,000 television out. Okay. Buy a new one. <laughs> I, uh, you, guys, uh, you guys still reading TUAW? <laughs> oh, not as of too soon this just yeah right too soon too soon likes you know i i haven't read it regularly in many years oh, uh, you have it's not, in my you it's in my i mean i'm st- i'm still i'm still using rss so it's That's in my right. rss list so i was reading it you know i was seeing the headlines and reading like, was, reading the first paragraph anyway. i was reading um joystick which is the gaming blog that got shuttered alongside tuaw also yeah. an aol property uh, another uh 
<laughs> another casualty. Another casualty of corporate America, right? I mean, AOL. Who knew that AOL? I didn't. Did you know AOL owned them? Yes, because they bought Engadget from the. They bought the whole Weblogs Inc. Okay. years ago. Okay, um, but, but it's. I must have been out that day. It is amazing to me that uh, you know that they had a MacWorld to UAW, if you will. Um, although I guess MacWorld gets to continue living just with a scant staff, but. I don't know. I'm doing the math on Daring Fireball for a minute because who doesn't want to count John Gruber's money? I do. Right now, <laughs> the price that he has listed on his website is $8,750 for a week-long sponsorship. So we're going to ignore his other revenue sources like the T-shirts and the deck ads. We're only going to look at his week-long syndicated feed sponsorships. Um, let's say that – because sometimes, you know, they don't sell right away. Let's say he only, only in quotes, can get, you know, $6,000 per spot. And they, he sells out the year. So you're talking a minimum of $300,000 gross that Daring Fireball is making from syndicated feed sponsorships. And they're saying, and that's, that's one guy doing one site. Um, I'm amazed that with the traffic that these sites should be able to get, given the kind of content they're writing about, that the people running them can't find ways to make them profitable. Well, it doesn't I think, make any well, sense The, the fundamental it's, it's problem their... here is, is, is the advertising economy, I feel like. It's right. the same thing, you know, speaking from my time at Macworld, it's the same thing going on there, which is that, they sold in some ways the ads feel like they got sold for peanuts and and the other part of it is also infrastructure right i mean if you've got 20 people writing for you you also have to pay 20 people unlike sure. unlike Darren Fireball only has to pay John Gruber and that's great because you know he can scale that upwards forever essentially <laughs> and he has to pay Jonas hush money right <laughs> shut up i'm trying to write money <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it's it is interesting that given the popularity of Apple, is it part of it is that there there are so many places to go, right? And even if you're churning out a decent amount of content, and even you know if a good chunk of it is solid content, there's so much the press behind you know media where it's like quantity. There is so much focus on quantity over quality. I feel like especially from the corporate side, uh, and I feel like the the blogs especially fall prey to that. Like we have to just constantly put out content. And yeah. a lot of that content then ends up being kind of subpar. You write it in your spare time to, like, make sure the site looks fresh while yeah. you're working on longer content. And, you know, Gruber doesn't do that, right? Like, he, he writes linkless stuff, which is kind of really quick for him. But he doesn't feel like if he doesn't update the site for eight hours, he doesn't care. Right. right. And right. it's, I mean, obviously, I don't think uh, my guess is that Daring Fireball is one of the more successful examples of this model. No question. But you look at what Mac stories does and full disclosure, I sell Mac stories week long sponsorships. Or if you look at what Jason Snell does with um, six colors there, nobody's pricing it like on a CPM model, which right, is what exactly. everybody who sold ads for Mac world and TUAW surely was doing, right? They're saying this is the rate. It costs this much for a week. I'm not telling you exactly how many impressions are going to get. I'm not telling you how many clicks you're going to get. This is what it costs. And it's, well, it's, it's a fundamental difference. I feel like between an advertising and a sponsorship, right? Like, yeah, this more like right. putting your name on the local little league team it's like yeah you know yeah. i'm not getting like I mean, people aren't clicking through to get to, the well to get to the my well pizza place. little league team well yeah exactly i'm not getting any money directly from like sponsoring this sales pizza sponsoring the local little league place but if you know but if it's i like feel like i get more people coming in then that's you know and and i feel like good publicity and all that those are yeah, all benefits I, I feel like there's a, a, a difference when you suddenly have a department that's in charge of marketing and, <laughs> and selling ads because then that becomes their goal, right? They, right. I mean, they have one, they have one thing. They don't care about anything else, and it's it, their thing is selling ads. And so they want to sell an ad if there's like a free quarter inch of space on the page. 
they want to put an ad in it. Well, and the other flip side, there, you know, the other sort of thing that goes along with that is that they don't care who it is, right? Like they, yes, they want the yeah. company that's going to pay the most, but they don't care if the product has any relevance no. whatsoever to the <sighs> nope. audience. Because I mean, as Lex will remember, there was a time where there was a full page drop down Samsung ad on the front page of that world, <laughs> and we're all like, "What the hell?" Um, but the, you know, the upside of someone like Gruber or Jason who's selling his own stuff is he can actually pick and choose and you know i'm not saying that they always have the option to do so but they can actually like use the product and determine whether or not this is something that their readers are interested in so you get much more relevant targeted ads because you know who the audience is whereas something like macworld is kind of a shotgun he recently backed out of an ad right right jason jason did because he didn't he admitted that he didn't look closely enough at it and it didn't do what it purported to do and that's great and you can also do it like if that happened on a giant corporate side like they'd be like oh sorry you know whatever we'll pull that ad but like there wouldn't be i don't think you would get the same sort of response from it necessarily because i mean like look at all the places that run mac keeper ads yeah right like they clearly don't give a shit about the customers at that point no did uh did, did mac macworld never ran at mac keeper ad did they I can't say that for sure. I was not involved yeah. in any of the advertising decisions, but it, it wouldn't have blown my mind in any, in any way. Shape it would not shock me if they um, did. But yeah, I agree that, you know, I feel like the, the difficulty is supporting a site that is like the mid-range site where it's like you've got maybe, what, like a dozen employees bringing in enough revenue to pay a dozen employees, even if most of them are freelancers, I think is probably not cheap and you can't. You know, could do you think Tua could sell a sponsorship for more than Gruber is selling one? Because I don't think I, so. I wouldn't think so. No, I mean, well, no, I mean, he gets more traffic than anybody else, right? Even well, uh, even if even if he's not telling people that, everybody knows that, right? I mean, he's getting a ton of traffic, but I and I have no idea what you know unofficial Apple weblogs traffic looks like, but I think that it's. I'm not saying, you know, do one sponsorship and that's it, and that'll solve your 12-person company's need to pay everybody. <laughs> but I'm saying there are creative ways to think about what other opportunities do you have to make the site profitable mm-hmm. um, that clearly the the AOL folks did not think were worth it. Um, and so, like, Macworld's solution for a long time was let's just put more and more ads there. Let's try to sell sponsored articles uh, that the editorial staff will hate. Let's autoplay videos. They were like, let's just get more ad impressions, which is one way to solve that problem or to fail at solving that problem. It's one way to attempt solving that problem. Um, and the alternative is let's find more creative ways that we can get stuff that's going to be more effective than obnoxious ads that everybody's going to look to pause or just close the window because it's autoplaying whatever like let's try to find more creative things we can do that will make this more interesting so instead of a sponsored article where you're publishing you know copy written by advertiser x it's like here's the I don't know. Uh, here's the the. Uh, I can't think of the, any of the good Apple uh, third party vendors. The Belkin. Here's the Belkin audio tip of the day, right? And so then it's it's an article that's brought to you by Belkin, but it's written, it's editorial, and the idea isn't that they own it or that they've you know created the content. It's merely that that's an article that they're underwriting. Like there's creative stuff. Oh, I see what you mean. That you can yeah. do uh, that 
you know, that, like you said before, no sales team is going to be embracing right now because that's not how they operate. It's not what their history is. They just want to sell as much as they can. They go in such a weird direction because you're right with the sponsored content. The thing that was weirdest when I worked there was sponsored content that looked like news articles. And in some cases, it was more like something that you're describing where it's like AT&T sponsors this article. And the article might not have anything to do with AT&T, but it still wasn't written by any. It was written by our division that was like basically paid directly by advertisers <laughs> um, and or worked with advertisers. I should say to figure out and maybe it had some tangent based on like a networking or something that was you know related to AT&T in some slim way but it wasn't as if it was directly hawking AT&T services right but there's still something weird and uncomfortable about that Um, but I agree with you that I feel like a lot of these places these institutions are kind of hidebound in like you know as with so many big institutions and I think you can count AOL among that easily they tend to stick with what works dial up (laughs) if AOL is still sending out goddamn CDs like with 30 free day trials <laughs> then they are sticking with what works my friend they are apparently i mean it, still charging people for dial-up people who would like got in and i would not be it would not surprise me if my parents were one of those it's um, one of their biggest revenue sources they say yeah a lot of people just don't have broadband or haven't made the switch and as unbelievable as that seems to those of us who deal with technology all the time i mean my parents didn't have my parents were on dial-up i think until you know maybe less than 10 years ago yeah mine too so it's not it's hard to you know argue with the fact that I think there are just a lot of houses. I think it is also a generational thing, right? Like I don't think yeah. anybody under the age of like thirty or something is on dial up. I would I would imagine that the average age of an AOL dial up subscriber has got to be like more <laughs> than hundred and fifteen, and that's fascinating too, right? Because that means their market is dying off. <laughs> Literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. I mean. So they, you know, instead of investing in something that might have growth potential down the road, they're like, nope, let's stick with dial-up. That yeah, right, ship right. is still <laughs> sailing. Uh, <laughs> our interests are suddenly in keeping people alive longer. <laughs> they're going to invest in that Google, like, you know, <laughs> cheating death idea. Uh, it's really, it is really sad, though, to see two ago. I mean, like, I felt like when I started, um, when, when Jason hired me to write for Mac user, uh, way back when Tuol was sort of like, I know that was sort of the model that he was patterning Mac user on. And th- we certainly felt like they were one of our biggest competitors. Uh, and at that point, I think, I think that was around the time that Scott McNulty was the lead blogger there. And I think I, uh, he and I were, I think I always viewed him as like a friendly rival. And then later on he worked for me, which was great. <laughs> and now, and now once again, you're, you're vicious enemies. Yes. It, well, nemeses. Right. Yes. Yes. And did you see that the uh, that much of the Tuwa team is launching a new site uh, on February 9th? Oh, I did not see that. They, uh, a- Apple World yes. Today is what it's called. And they're on Twitter at Apple World Today. <laughs> I wonder where they came up with that. Wait, wait, what? Yeah. So AWT. It's got almost all the letters from the old huh. acronym. <laughs> um, just in a different order. Uh, so yeah, I have no idea what it's going to be, but their and their URL is the classic <laughs> Apple world dot today. So there you go. I'm trying to figure out which, uh, which of their, do they say which of their staff? Is no, actually they, going there? they simply say most of them. Okay. Uh, well, that was what they were tweeting about early. You know, that was a lot of people suggesting that we should do that, you know, for Macworld, but it was, it was kind of weird at the same time because Macworld still exists. <laughs> You right. know, it's just, yeah. and, and then the other challenge of it is, you know, there's so many people who are on staff that that was their full-time employment 
and they were, you know, supporting families on that, for example. And right. you can't necessarily have eight people all decide, like, you know, I'm going to take a risk on this totally unproven site that we haven't created yet to support my family. <laughs> yeah. So I, I understand, you know, and, and that's why so many of my colleagues have gone off to better, you know, Dan Frakes over the wire cutter now, for example. I think, Which is a know, good place for Dan. Yeah, it's a great place for Dan. I'm, I'm yeah. happy that he works there. It's sad that I don't get to work with him anymore, but, you know, it's he found a site that is very well right. suited to to what he is best at. Right. Um, and so I know a lot of my other former colleagues, too, have, you know, bounced around and, and landed in various places because, you know, there there are practical needs. So it's sad that we don't get to work together as a team because I really do feel like that we were, you know, a really, a really, we had like a really well-oiled machine. But it all started to fall apart after Lex Friedman left, let me tell you. I'm sure that was the, uh, yeah, that was Sorry, the, everybody. He's the glue I mean, holding us together. You've just pulled out the keystone right there and it all crumbled I mean, truthfully, down. though, I had the same debate that you were just describing about, you know, do you go out on your own or do you, you know, do you have to join up another company? And I, I went with choice B. But I was at a point where the podcast ads were so time consuming that I was like, I either have to quit my job and do the podcast ads full time on my own, which is sounded terrifying or, you know, do something else. So I did it for another person instead. <laughs> it's hard Smart to go out move. on your own sometimes. I mean, I hear that. can you imagine that? <laughs> you mean leaving the house on my own? No, just leaving a job and working for yourself. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine? I was, I was the, it was the happiest moment of my life. <laughs> <laughs> including adopting my son no uh, i'm still angling for a uh for a job over it at very nice website i hear i hear good things oh yeah <laughs> my website is mostly just i mean it's mostly to just have a presence for myself to for for freelancing other places and doing the books and stuff like you that you post slightly more on your website than i post on my website <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i try and i try and post regularly just to keep a presence there but um it's not exactly it's not a money maker per se <laughs> i make a little money but i don't make i don't make enough to thrill to announce of. that john moltz and i are launching our new website <laughs> I don't, it doesn't a actually, less nice which website. will be named later <laughs> which will be named at a later date I think what we should do is we should go in together and buy Radio Shack. Oh, good call. That's probably pretty yeah. cheap. And just show up, just show up randomly at stores. What if we made a blog called the official Apple weblog? <laughs> the official Radio Shack weblog. <laughs> that way we could get sued by like three different people. <laughs> Crazy Radio Shack rumors. <laughs> Anything else going on? Oh, there's the thing with uh, Apple is building a $2 billion data center in the building for that used to house its Sapphire plant. So this is its own Sapphire plant, not the one that it like got in the argument with the other company? I think it is that one, but they had basically bankrolled them. So I think it was their... That was my understanding also. It was they paid their the way for that company oh, right, right. Okay. to have got a it. facility that it then right. turned, determined it could not use because it didn't know how to do what it was promising it could do. Yeah. So Sapphire. Yeah. <laughs> supposedly just like extremely hard to break and that's what everyone says should be on covering all of our next phones so that we don't constantly have to go into the apple store to get new screens because we dropped our iphone yeah but there's problems with it too i think it although it although it is much more shatter resistant i think it doesn't like i don't know it doesn't bend as well there there are definitely things that are less um durable about it as opposed to like at least compared to the really heavily engineered glass that they've been using for a long time so it's definitely harder um, I think it's also heavier as a result. So, you know, the phones w- would end up heavier. But they're using it in some of the watches, um, and they use right. it on the camera lens and on the Touch ID sensor. I think the question is whether it's they've found a cost-effective way 
to make it big enough to, to make it enough of it to make the phones you know to let the phones use it over the entire display and i think the answer is probably right now it doesn't seem like there's a way to do that 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 works in terms of how much it would cost and how much they would they would make on it because at some point it's just easier to cover the rest of the world in rubber yeah exactly some right. people just like to watch the world bounce <laughs> every time every time you drop your iphone it bounces back into your hand brought to you by apple <laughs> <laughs> did you guys read the uh the i think i saw i saw it linked from the loop but the post on medium about how to make your iphone's minimal least dark screen like the the, the least bright version get even darker so to go darker than the minimum brightness <laughs> wait wait <laughs> do you mean like turn it off <laughs> No, so maybe you guys don't have this problem, but I, I usually keep my iPhone very, very dim unless I'm outside, and then at night, I go all the way to the far left. Like, I want it totally dark if I'm using it, like, first thing in the morning and the lights are still off in the room, um, and it's still too bright, and then today, I just saw this thing linked that was like, here's how you can make it go even darker than dark, and it's wow. basically... Are you like sure this advantage. isn't a spinal tap joke or something? I'm positive. Yeah, really? I did it. I set it up on my phone <laughs> good, today. Good. Awesome. This one goes down to negative one. <laughs> I will give you guys the link so you can check it out. But if you, like me, feel that your iPhone's... We uh, do not like you. Brightness yeah, thank you, too. <laughs> if your minimum brightness is too bright, you can make it darker. It's exciting. I was very excited. You can hear the excitement in my voice. I, oh, is yeah. your <sighs> palpable okay. excitement? I'm not sure what your use case is for that, but... It's, I mean, you know, you know what else is dimmer than dim wax? I'm not sure. I, and I'm not sure I want to know what your use case well, no, is. Like, so iBooks, uh, the iBooks app already has this option. The iBooks app can go darker than the regular the iPhone can light. go or the iPad can go. So when you drag the iBook slider, it can get darker than when you're at maximum darkness already. So this yeah. is an option that lets you do that phone-wide if, you wanna, if you're in a, like a nighttime reading situation where you can just make every app be really dark. Do you, so. do, you do this purely for saving your eyes or is it like for battery, battery life? Oh, it's, it's all about the eyes. Okay. I, I guess I don't <laughs> have this problem. I mean, occasionally, yeah, I wake up in the morning and I'll like turn my phone on. It's definitely bright, but it only takes like my eyes adjust after a second or two. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have this problem. So, all right. I'm so the, it's I just you. Out. It's, it's just fine. you. I'm okay with it. <laughs> At least you're not touch tapping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, uh, my MacBook Pro, I still can't put it to sleep by closing it. So, oh no! If anybody wants to fix that, let me know. Can't, can't, or uh, won't. If I close it. <laughs> Uh, it, if it's asleep and I close it, it turns on. The Apple lights up and it's just on. If it's on and I close it, it stays on. Like I can only put it to sleep from the Apple menu. And it's horrible. It's like, why even have a laptop at this point? Fuck it. Yeah, yeah. you should just be carrying around an iMac. <laughs> one, of those guys, one of those guys in a coffee shop with the iMac. Have you, have you taken it to the Apple store? I haven't, but it's on my list. I think I have to. There's there, no I, nothing I do can fix it. I went through every PM set option there is, man. Yeah, and that's that's all I can think huh. of because it sounds like a power management problem, right? And uh, if it's not the if it's not like resetting the SMC or whatever or PMU, whatever it is on that model, your flex capacitor. Yeah, as long as if it's not like reversing the polarity and discharging <laughs> the negative crossing flux the, capacitor, the streams, then you know you're basically you might as well throw it away. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one thing. And I'm, it's just, it's hard emotionally to uh, schedule an Apple, you know, to go to the Genius Bar is admitting defeat. And I, I haven't wanted to get there. <laughs> well, listeners, if you can help Lex put his MacBook Air or wow. MacBook Pro to sleep and not in the, like, put it to sleep way, 
this podcast gold is for asking the listeners <laughs> solve their solve our problems. Yeah, it's like the re, it's like the reverse of car talk. <laughs> it's only fair. We create so many problems for listeners that I feel like they should solve some of our problems. After all, we've done for you by creating all these problems. <laughs> So I, I got a text that somebody's on my conference line, so I have to dial into it. Someone's on your conference oh, line? What, do you want me to just add the conference line here? I can no. do that. Just conference them in, yeah. We'll, we'll take care of whatever it is. Left. I'm leaving you all now. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Fine, jeez. Okay, bye.